contemporary surreal has gotten just like it just means weird (laughs) which my work is that too so I guess it fits Um, I don't do a lot of landscapes it's more figurative animals and very emotional like for me it's definitely a form of expressing myself I think with the work that really does connect because not every piece really like some pieces are just for fun right but the ones that really do connect I think I'm just expressing trauma combined with getting through trauma finding light in the trauma oftentimes finding humor in things that are really dark I think just basically coping mechanisms for trauma or sometimes I am just drawing trauma like it's just my way of dealing and and for me it's less getting it out as more of like god like I want somebody to see this like being heard maybe for me the voice you just heard belongs to fine artist Desiree Lee describing her pen and ink illustrations. Join Desiree. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Desiree Lee, and I am a fine artist and illustrator. I do drawings and printmaking. And Brittany Marie. I am the artist known as Brittany Marie. It's funny because I I changed my... My name is Brittany Nielsen, but I changed my name a little while ago to Brittany Marie. Some people know me as Brittany Nielsen, some people know me as Brittany Marie, and then some people think it's really stupid that I changed my name. But that that is, you may call me anything in that world. Brittany, Brittany, Britsters, Brittle Bones, I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> you can just call me whatever you want. In today's portraits of two artists and storytellers, trauma, anxiety, depression, and autism. I'm your host, Liz Christensen, and it's all in the telling. Welcome to episode 12, where art intersects. I found Desiree Lee's work at the 2019 Utah Arts Festival and was struck by the technique of her art as well as the contrasts within her pieces and my experience of those pieces. That, I, I find that so surprising because when I look at your work, I don't feel impacted by trauma. I don't feel like trauma is what is my experience in viewing it. Does that yeah, make sense? totally. So could, your, your work has, um, I receive it like there's a playfulness and an mm-hmm. optimism and a beauty and I don't know if that's more my filter or if you think that in your putting it out there you, I don't know, get above it? I think I I hear everything from people. So I hear that because it is there are many pieces that are fun and playful or many pieces that poke fun at dark things, right? Yeah. Um, But then I also get people who will come up and they see really dark things in it. And I usually like when somebody comes up and is like, wow, this is really dark. I'm like, oh, we're going to be best friends. Like, (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) Um, In fact, one of my really good friends I met that way, he just came up and looked around and he was like, man, this is really dark. And I was like, let's be, like, let's be friends. <laughs> and I don't think, like, it doesn't necessarily mean if people don't see dark in my work, it doesn't mean that they haven't been through, I don't know how swearing works on your, that they haven't been through stuff. Um, but I think there's just a certain type of person, the way that I deal with things really connects. And people who deal with trauma that same way kind of tend to see that in it like see really dark um or I think for some people if the pain is really fresh then they'll see the dark in it more um 
and there's definitely a difference in pieces too. Like I have pieces that are all light and fun and, and whimsical and like there's oh, that side of it too. For it. Yeah. yeah. That's people say whimsical a lot. So there are there is a difference in some pieces. Like some pieces are definitely darker and much more connected to my soul and some are fun and whimsical. When I met Desiree briefly this summer, I knew I wanted to talk to her about her art and her book, Beginning Pen and Ink. Brittany Marie, however, I have known for years. Brittany participates in a lot of different storytelling tracks, so I was kind of keeping her in my back pocket, trying to decide what of all the things we could talk about I really wanted to discuss with her. After I met Desiree, I knew exactly which things I wanted to ask Brittany, and I knew based on how Brittany engages in conversation and with people and the world around her, that I was really going to enjoy our interview. I started out as an actor probably when I was eight, probably younger. I don't know. My mom said I came out of the womb singing, so I assume that meant I was a little attention grabber since I was very, very small. But I think I re- like technically started with dance the way that most girls do, and then I got into theater, and I've been doing theater since I was a little kid. And then as I got older, I think the I think the progression of it went uh, in college. I've always liked writing, but it was mostly a way to pass time in church, quite <laughs> frankly. Like, really, I would sit in church, and I would write pages upon pages. It looked like I was free writing. You know when people just write mindlessly, yeah, yeah. and they don't, like, bother with punctuation? And I would do that for three straight hours, essentially, in church. And I would end up with 20-plus pages of just written thoughts. Crappy pseudo-philosophy, I would I would probably call it, because I don't know that any of it was any good. It would just be like, or someone might say something during a sermon or, a, you know, whatever. And I, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it would get me thinking about something. Usually it was just whatever I was pondering at the time, because that's been my sort of curse through life, is that I can't stop thinking about things ever ever so like my brain never shuts off and I'm always just constantly pondering something or thinking about something and so I would just sit with with books and just these nope I have I mean I don't even know where they all are now honestly which is the weird thing because there's got to be like hundreds of them but it's a process thing not a product thing for you no no one was ever going to read those like that was my intention was that no one would ever see those except for me but then I got into college and I had to take um, like a media, social media writing course or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But as part of the criteria for the class, I had to make a blog. So that was the beginning of what some people know me for, which is Diary of an Anxious White Virgin. The blog that will live in infamy. <laughs> How much do I regret doing it? Maybe just a little. Not a lot of regrets, maybe just a handful of regrets. About what aspects of it? I just don't get excited, people who are listening, because by the time this is published, the blog will probably be gone. Because I actually went back recently and um, transferred all of those blog posts into like a Google Doc. Oh, okay. There's over 600 pages. Like that's, and, it, and the blog only went for about a year and a half, I want to say. So a ton of writing. But as I was reading back through a lot of that stuff, it was just crazy to me like how much my opinions and views of things have changed over time. And there was a, there was not, I wouldn't say there's a ton, but there's a decent amount of material in there that I actually disagree with quite a bit now. And I Mm. would not want people to associate how I felt back then about things about how, uh, in, 
in relation to how I feel now about things, sure. if that makes sense. But I think that's normal. Yeah. I'm not mad at myself about that. I think that that's part of the growth process for anybody is you may start out with a certain set of beliefs, but as more information becomes available to you or life experience happens to you, you just change the way you think about things. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not like I'm spewing out some horrific, terrible ideology. It's just not, it's just not reflective of how I feel today. So, so I'm going to get rid of it is the point. <laughs> it won't are, be there anymore. <laughs> are you, are you feeling like a hundred percent confident about that though? Because like the internet is one of those things where like once it's out there, like you don't have total control. No, in fact, that's part of the reason why I, I have a love hate relationship with all of this. And by all of this, as I gesture vaguely to the air is um, my podcast, my blog, um, anything that I've ever written, podcasts that I've been on that belong to other people, I realize that to an extent, there's no erasing it. And that both fills me with dread and horror because it's like, (laughs) well, again, because there are times, well, I'll give you an example. So to tie it back, like I had my blog for a while, right? The blog was sort of the catalyst for the podcast. So I know we'll touch on probably more of that later, but all that to say that I now have a podcast called the Bemuse Podcast, and I was recording an episode just the other day with someone, and we recorded for two hours. So it's a lot of material, right? And at the end of it, by the time we were done recording, like there wasn't even like a week or a month in between, by the time we were done recording, I was like, I don't think I believe half the things that I said in there. They just came out of you because it's a process, because you engage mm-hmm. with content with words? Yep, because I speak through things to try and figure out whether what I actually think about them. Sure. And so that happens during the course of even recording a podcast episode is we'll be talking through things, me and whoever I have on, and I'll say things like, well, this is what I think, yet da 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 and then I'll say that, and then they'll say something, and I'll go, oh, that's actually a really good point. I don't know if I believe what I just said. Yeah, I might be persuaded already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You are very self-aware, I think, and evaluative, evaluative, self-evaluative, or reflective. How did that come about for you? And how does that come out in your art or entertainment, if that word is more comfortable than artist, entertainer? I don't know where it came from because I've always been this way. So <laughs> some might argue... That you were prepackaged. Yeah. That way. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I was actually diagnosed as being on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. And so I guess if I wanted, I could just attribute it to that perhaps. But I don't know that that is typical of people on the spectrum. I have met a lot of people now since my own diagnosis. I've spent more time with people on the spectrum. I have met a lot that are incredibly introspective the way that I am. And then I've met some that just aren't at all. So I don't know that it's it's a necessary facet of autism okay. to be to be incredibly introspective. I mean, to be analytical, yes, I would say definitely. That's a pretty common denominator. Yeah, a pretty yeah, a pretty common facet of autism is being more about like systems and being more analytical by nature. I don't know why. I've just always I've just always been this way, and and how that. How that contributes to this other stuff, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought, I thought about it and I just, I, okay, how about this? I think to my own detriment, 
I think that I'm the kind of person who doesn't care as much as I should about how I'm presenting myself to the world in the sense that if I were smart, if I were socially wise, which again could harken back to the autism thing, if I were socially wise, air quotes, I wouldn't I would not be laying out my heart and my soul and my trauma out there in the world the way that I do. Because most people I know are fine to talk about those sorts of things with people who they know and who they trust. And usually it's in a private setting and that's it. (laughs) I, who on the other hand, will go write a blog post and put it up on the internet or record a podcast and put it up on the internet or do some sort of makeup thing and put it up on the internet. And so I don't know why that sort of exhibitionist part of it is there other than to say I must not have a very good sense or care for my social, what's the word, my social standing, perhaps. It's not that I don't care because I do care. Right, that perfectionist part comes out or you're, you're, you're wondering about how it's going to be received. Per- perfectionist with myself. I'm my own worst critic. I'm competing with me kind of thing. I'm constantly fighting the, the voices, in, not, not the literal voices, but, you know, the voices in my head that are telling me that I'm not good enough, that I'm not whatever. But in terms of how I come across to the world, I don't think I give enough thought, quite honestly, in some ways. You're, you're the one Instagrammer who, who isn't like, okay, what's my brand and how do I effectively do this and how... I don't really understand that, quite honestly. Like, I understand it in theory. I don't understand it in practice. And it seems contrived if I could be pretentious again. Brittany puts herself out on the internet through a variety of mediums, blog posts, podcasts, and makeup artistry on Instagram. It's honest and vulnerable and personal and imperfect. And there's no erasing it, no taking it back. And those are all the reasons why I thought of her when I spoke with Desiree and her cross-hatched pen and ink illustrations. Desiree reading from the introduction of Beginning Pen and Ink. Pen and ink may seem daunting to some. The inability to erase a mistake can intimidate even the most experienced artist. But within this unforgiving nature lies the very beauty of the medium. Your final ink drawing does not just show a polished piece of work. It also shows the energy you used to get there, the second guesses you made along the way, and the unintentional lines that you somehow made work. As you continue to learn and grow in this medium, you may or may not make fewer mistakes, but you will certainly improve at embracing those mistakes and turning them into an advantage. What do you think about that? I just think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, there's definitely a tone in my introduction of trying to be really encouraging, which I think comes through in that paragraph, is that I really want to encourage people to not be afraid of making mistakes. Um, God, and it really relates to what we were just talking about, is just like rolling with things, um, which is funny that I've gotten into pen and ink and printmaking because they're both for other people, very meticulous media. You have to be very careful and they're very messy. But I don't take that approach to things. I'm just like, well, I'll make a mistake and it'll be there and it'll be part of the piece and it'll be fine. 
I think that's so amazing because, so I was like, I'm going to use your book and I'm going to draw and I'm going to try this. And I suck at drawing so hard because like, I, I haven't put in the time. I haven't gotten the training. Like, so there's none of the stuff that it, if it's born within me or whatever, I certainly <laughs> haven't given it an opportunity to grow or be fostered. So like none of the variables are in line. And, and when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, does she think she actually makes mistakes? And then I like was looking through, like, can I find them? Are they in there? I don't see them. I feel so good about this because she's saying she does. <laughs> so it's just a matter of like how I, how I fix it or it's... not fix it even, but just like use it. Oh, totally, totally, and that's just part of the dance. Since you're, since you say you're like a performing artist, yeah, that's like part of the dance. You make a mistake in front of people, and you just handle it gracefully and move on. And some people might not even know that you made a mistake. <laughs> you hope it just didn't break your ankle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, maybe not that big a mistake. That's... Right. Okay. Those ones probably you get a different piece of paper yeah, and start over. Maybe. I've I've only ever thrown away one piece that was like beyond recovery so that's amazing to me well a lot of pieces have turned into something different than they were originally going to be also so (laughs) it's more of like a I don't I don't want to waste my time so if I'll make a mistake I'm like all right well this is going to be something different now (laughs) (laughs) I have logged so many hours into you you are now a whale (laughs) exactly 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 now you're a two-headed person that's fine I guess one of the advantages to not being completely realistic, like completely representational, I can just make mistakes and it's fine. <laughs> and then someone comes along who's like, the two-headed person made me think. And you're like, so I'm meaningful. so glad. Because the two-headed person was, I sneezed. Yeah. <laughs> tell me what that means to you. <laughs> to me, it means allergies. You tell me what that means to you. <laughs> art is certainly interpretive. And what the art means to the artist may be totally different. Its purpose may be different. Or as Brittany Marie explains with her Instagram account, the context and motivation is part of it. And she only gets a handful of words for that. Someone might see me do stuff that seems, I don't know, provocative or... um, Shocking or dark. Shocking or dark and and assume that that is how I am or like the things that I really enjoy. And it's like, no, it's just a purging. It's just a purging for me. And not not that it's wrong to be into that genre, it's just not, um, the motivation behind it is different, I guess. I could have summed all that up to just, in just saying that context matters and motivation matters, but sometimes that's hard to convey when all you have is one photograph and then a handful of words. Yeah. So it's precarious. I don't know. What are you conveying when, um, you do the birds? I don't know why I like birds. Um, I think... They're colorful. That's probably a simplistic way of putting it. They're just colorful. They're beautiful animals. They're easy to sort of take and interpret. Interpreting a deer is kind of hard <laughs> because they're mostly brown. <laughs> and uh, and not particularly... Although, as I think about it, I'm like, no, I could still do a deer. That would be a way to do it. But birds are easy to emulate because they are... They're just colorful and, and I love birds. I think birds have always been my favorite animal. I just, I, I, I really like birds. I don't know. I don't know that it's much more deep than that. I just like birds. I, I think, I think <laughs> color and liking it is all the answer you need. Yeah. <laughs> like to justify like, that. Like it's, it's, it's like a, was it Forrest Gump's like, dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away. 
It's not even that deep. It's just... <laughs> it's not even that. No, I just like birds. <laughs> what about the Bleeding Heart Dove was like so... Because that one you called out specifically, not, yeah. not just as being difficult, but like also that the want was that much more, right? Yeah, and that one is one that I actually, depending on the day, I love it or I want to rip it off the internet. I'm serious. Most, my, most of my other stuff, I'm like, I'm happy with it. And if I'm not happy with stuff, I don't post it. But, but that one... I think because in my head, it started out as something, I wanted it to be beautiful. I wanted it to be glamorous. I wanted it to be sort of more in that vein. And what it came out to be was kind of almost scary looking. I wouldn't say scary, but it's dark. Um, like even the, even the shots that I got. And, and <laughs> just as, a, as an aside... For people who haven't ever seen these, most of the most of the the makeup I do, I'm usually wearing something that comes off my shoulders, and you're seeing from you're seeing shoulder up, um, and naked shoulders and whatever. I just find because the clothing dis, 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 distracts from the makeup, so it's not that I'm trying to be scandalous. One, I like my clavicle, so I have no problem showing it off. Two, I find the clavicle is actually a very beautiful part on a woman's body. And I don't believe that it should be sexualized, but everyone's going to interpret it how they want to. I have no control over that. But also, when I did the Bleeding Heart, <laughs> so the Bleeding Heart Pigeon, or the Bleeding Heart Dub, is this beautiful bird. I'm pretty sure it's an Asian bird. And it has, it looks like a, sort of a nondescript blue pigeon. But then it has this white chest, and it has this red splotch on its chest that truly looks like someone shot it. And I don't understand, like I'm fascinated by it because it's like, why? Like, why did it evolve that way? Because you'd think you don't want to appear wounded because predators go after wounded things, right? Which is as true in the animal kingdom as it is in the, in, in the human world as well. Predators go after people who they think are weak a lot of times. People who seem easy targets to them. Often people who are wounded mentally, psychologically, emotionally, physically. They, you become more of a target. You can become more of a target to predators. And so this idea that a creature would evolve a coloring that makes them look wounded was so fascinating to me and I think that's why that bird holds so much intrigue and when I did it it meant so much to me and so I wanted it to be perfect and I don't <laughs> don't think like I said depending on the day so I may do that one again someday just because I don't know that I love the way that it turned out because I look haunted is the way that I would describe it I look haunted in it the tension in the bleeding dove picture between beauty and this haunted look and the idea that prey would choose to look wounded, that's still on my mind, still sticking with me. And it's tension and contrast in Desiree's illustrations. It's the fact that the images stick with me and I have to work through them. I don't just look at the things these two women create. Their art intersects with me somehow, and I have to process it. There's one in your book, Beginning Pen and Ink, as, um, well, there's tons in there. I love I loved how much you put in there. And that you showed us stages of drawings after we'd seen the product, like the end result yes. of them for a while. I thought yes. that was very cool. Oh, I can't take credit for all, like the publisher kind of directed me. <laughs> there was a lot of the publisher kind of telling me what they wanted. So I the, can't take 
I can't take credit for all of it, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the layout of the book is someone else's kudos, but the content of the, the book is totally Yes, that's all me. Your yes. kudos. <laughs> yeah. That there is one in there. Then I got to the page. It was, I think, after a series of um, maybe not whimsical, but, you know, you start off with like, here's the differences in paper. Here's the differences in pens. And, and so there's some like just nice representations of papers and pens <laughs> and things. And then we get to this page where there is a, a girl falling out of a tree. Yes. And I was like, whoa, because <laughs> this is the first time anything that that I noticed was like heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I stared at it forever and I was trying to figure out what the next, like if you had done this as sequential art, like what, what the next few sequences would look like. And, and like what, because she is in mid fall um, and there is nothing on the ground but ground, right? <laughs> And I was like, I just, I just spent a lot of time with that one. I really, I really liked it. And I spent time looking like, which branch did I think she fell from? I think she fell from that one because those lines like, like intersect through that branch. So she's falling from like really high. What was she doing (laughs) up there? Like she's just climbing a tree, man. I know, but but it's not ending well for her. It's not. It's not. And people get worried, especially kids will get worried when they see that piece. And I'm like, oh, she'll be fine. Like, I don't tell them how or just why. Like, I'm just like, she'll be fine. <laughs> is that is that lying to them, though? Because um, I could not, I, I'm an imaginative person, and I could not figure out, like, how quickly someone could run from behind the tree with a trampoline and save her. Do you know? Well, you know, she could land in a certain way. Maybe she that she, she breaks an arm, but not, you oh, know. Okay. Yeah, she'll be fine. Um... <laughs> No, I love that. This might be totally off topic, but I have a piece. I I think you may have seen it that is a bear, and there are like children inside in the, the bear. Yes. Kind of like a jo- Jonah and the whale thing, but with kids and a bear. I and was I, thinking, like, this is how Goldilocks really ends. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was totally based on like old German fairy tales and how dark they are. But I love hearing people come in because like one person will come in and it's like, oh, the bear ate the kids. That's so sad. That's such a dark piece. And the next person will come in and be like, oh, that bear is protecting those kids from what's outside. That's so nice. <laughs> like, it's really funny to hear people. And I don't have an, like, there is, there's not really a right answer. I love that moment right before something bad might happen or something bad is happening, but it hasn't happened yet. And I think a lot of, like, so I'm, especially my early stuff, which that tree is an earlier one, is really heavily influenced by Edward Gorey. And he loved that moment, like, right after something bad would happen. And some of his stuff was kind of, like, bloody and, like, kind of... And I'm not into blood and gore. But I love that moment right before something bad happens. Because you don't know that it's going to happen. Like, you don't know that she's going to get seriously injured, right? She could get minor injuries, you know? And I... Maybe... I'm just making this connection now. But maybe that's kind of how we live our lives, right? Or how I feel like I'm living my life is, like, this constant fall... (laughs) This, and this you don't constant moment before something terrible is about to happen. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that might be the anxiety talking, but <laughs> <laughs> um, like you just don't know what's going to happen, and something terrible could happen. Something terrible could happen, but it hasn't yet, and so we'll just keep like going along. Like <laughs> we'll just keep because you don't know that she's going to die. She might not. She might break an arm and learn from it. She might climb the tree again. Like who knows. I think this is I think this is an exact moment of where it's like this is why your work is so optimistic to me because you give you give it an out. I almost always. Yeah, that's true. I I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so I so I spent a long time trying to like follow the out. 
Like, I, I get she hasn't hit the ground love yet. love that you did that. I love that you did There's somebody behind the tree with the net. She'll be fine. She'll be... I with... pictured them as, like, clowns. Like, you know, the ones that, like, run out of the clown Like car. on Dumbo. Because well, one of the first things I saw of yours that really caught my eye at the Utah Arts Festival was, um, like, a carnival circus one in the woman. Yeah. Who's standing. So, so I already had, like, carnival circus, like, marinating in the back of my mind with you. And so I was like, yeah, a bunch of clowns are going to pile out of the tree totally. to save her. That's told, for you, that's what's going to happen. That's fine. I sure hope so. <laughs> I do that with little kids all the time. I'm always like, oh, it's fine. There's somebody there. Like, she'll be fine. <laughs> not that you have the, not that you're a little kid. No, but like, no, but you let me see what I want to see. Yeah, totally, totally. And while I might, I might see something darker, I'm, well, it depends on the day. Some days I see something real dark and sometimes I don't, like. That's why they're open to interpretation. Do you feel like you have any level of, I don't want to use the word judgment, because I feel like that means you have to say no. But um, <laughs> do you? Uh, you underestimate. I will happily admit to being a judgmental person. Do you judge, do you, do you judge your characters? Do you, like, when you're looking at, at her, for example, the girl falling from the tree, are you ever like, you shouldn't have been on that higher limb? Like, there's a tire swing. Why weren't you on the swing? Oh, no, I think they're all me. The ones, the pieces that are meaningful are all me. So only in as much as I judge myself. And I would, I never, like, my thought is like, I'm so glad you weren't just on the swing. Like, get up in that tree and see how high you can go. And, oh, well, you fell. Like, (laughs) that will happen. That happens. Like, maybe you'll die. Oh, well. (laughs) That is so, that is so, roll with it for someone who has anxiety. Yeah, isn't that weird? That's pretty cool, but tell me about that. How does... I think it might be one of my ways of dealing with anxiety. Because when I was younger, I was super... Like, I was so afraid of what everybody thought of me, and just afraid of everything. Afraid of earthquakes. Like, I can't function. (laughs) If I don't just roll with it, I literally cannot function. There was a time in my life where, like, I didn't want to leave the house. I was essentially agoraphobic. I was afraid of everything and leaving the house terrified me. And so I really had to develop an attitude of just, I know I'm not going to die. I mean, (laughs) insofar as everybody knows they're not going to die. Yeah. like, (laughs) And I just had to learn to roll with it. And that's big time how I treat social situations now. Like just roll with it. If they think you're ridiculous, like then you're ridiculous, whatever. Like, (laughs) and without that, I can't, function like I really had to teach myself that was that like a, a mantra thing or how how did you teach yourself that I don't even well I haven't thought about it you're asking all these things that I've never thought about before <laughs> I don't know I probably therapy was really helpful in teaching me to just like be okay with how things are and not thinking ahead into the future all the time I don't know and socially I remember looking around and just trying to understand how other people were able to function socially and just noticing that they didn't seem to care. Like when the cool kids tripped, they just like recovered and went on. They didn't make a deal about it. Yeah, I don't know. Brittany is so cognizant and careful about the words she puts out on her podcast and on her blog. She's been attacked and taken out of context for those words. But her Instagram makeup art? That form of expression hasn't exposed her to the same criticisms. And she has a very different relationship with those images Maybe because of that? Maybe just anyway. The art that I... I even hate saying it. The art that I do with my makeup is not 
it's just an expression. And so now I've become the thing that I've always stated <laughs> the most. I'm just like, it's just my expression, okay, Liz? <laughs> this is just how I express myself. And I don't care if people like it or not. I just have to express myself. Do but you, but that's, that's different than the words for you? Uh, I don't know. I think the makeup, because I don't think I'm very good at it, is more, it's like a, you know when you're, you're a mother, so you know when your little kids bring you like a finger painting and they say, I made you this or a macaroni necklace, the unkind thing to do would be like, this has, ex this has exactly zero dollar value. Like I could not sell this on Etsy kind of thing. <laughs> Cause that's mean. And it's, and you know that it's a child and it's a child doing what a child can do. And so of course you say it's beautiful this is beautiful and you take it and you put it up on the fridge and you're like, I'm so proud of you. This is so great. That's what I feel about my makeup. Honestly, <laughs> Instagram is your macaroni noodle necklace. Yes. Instagram is my refrigerator where like I go and I put things up on there and I'm just like, I know this isn't great because look, I'm comparing myself. You have to understand because I work in this field, I have friends who are professional makeup artists. Yeah. People like Kat Nelson, uh, Drew is another one where the stuff they're doing is incredible. I mean, like Kat does these full body paintings with just airbrush where it looks like they're wearing clothing, but they're naked. And they're, it's like, it's like um, Skin Wars, that show people will know. And I look at their stuff and I think that is art. And I know I shouldn't compare. Like, I know that's not the point, but like <laughs> I do. And, and so I'm under no delusions that the makeup work that I'm doing is some like great avant-garde thing that people should be like, oh yes. And also here, have money for this. It really is. It's the macaroni necklace. That's the perfect way of putting it. It's my refrigerator. Mastering these skills gives you the building blocks of a language through which you can communicate beyond words and reach people with whom you never would have spoken. Yeah, so that's, like you said, that's true. Just generally for me, big time, because I travel a lot and meet a lot of people through my art. Um, but, but the one specific story I can think of was really early on in my career, and I know there are a million stories, and I feel bad that I haven't been able to think of them. <laughs> but this one really struck me, because I think it was the first time where, not where somebody connected with my art, but where somebody unexpectedly connected with my art. And it was this, this little teeny tiny art show up in Logan. And... A guy came up, he had kids, and I, you know, as an artist, you can kind of tell, like, this person looks like they'll like my work, this person doesn't, which is rude in judging people on how they look, but it it's tends to hold true. Marketing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Recognizing your demographic. So he came in and he kind of looked like maybe he was a farmer or just like a hard blue collar worker. He had a couple kids in tow. Um, they came in and I was like, okay, like, his kids might like some of my things, like, he's not going to connect with it at all. Um, and he saw this piece... And I, I think he teared up. He got emotional and just really connected to this piece. And I wasn't paying very close attention to him because I had prejudged him. And then he just bought the original. And the look in his eyes said that he very much connected with it. And it was this piece about a man who's essentially being buried alive. Like it's kind of a cross section and you can see a man in a coffin and everybody above him is having a funeral, but he's like alive in the coffin underground, which is terrifying. <laughs> um, but he like grabbed it and kind of was tearing up and just bought the original piece, which is not 
you know, it's an investment. It's a little bit of money. Yeah. Um, and he never, he never told me his story and I've made up all kinds of stories for him, but there was definitely like this person that I probably may have talked to, but wouldn't have felt like I would have ever connected with literally without words. We very strongly connected through that piece. And again, I don't know what it meant to him, but I know that it meant something and that he loved it and he didn't even, he didn't have to say it. Like you could just tell and he bought it and walked off and we never had a conversation (laughs) And maybe I remember it because I can make up all kinds of things that he might have been feeling. But I definitely know, you know, kind of what that piece emanates. And so, like, we connected over what that piece meant on a deeper level than words. Some of the stuff that you put on Instagram, though, is... um... I don't know. In in my mind, it's not quite as neutral as birds. Like the clowns, right? <laughs> the clowns are kind of freaky. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. The clowns, I think, come from more of a place. I think the way I tried to describe it once was the clowns are the innermost expression of the fear and anxiety that I'm always carrying around. And because I'm, I'm afraid of clowns. I don't know. Are you afraid of clowns? I think most sane people are afraid of clowns. Right? There's, there's something, there's something eerie about clowns. And because, because they're meant to be this playful child sort of, you know, like this, this innocent thing. And then someone came around, came along and like made an evil clown and you corrupted something that was supposed to be beautiful and innocent and simple which often tend to be the most disturbing things. It's another, that's that's the reason why horror films are always more scary when there's a child in it. Yeah. Like when you've got a scary child, that's so much more disturbing than, than like a psychopathic adult because you're like a, you know, a serial killer, a grown man who's a serial killer. Yeah, old hat man. We, we get know it. that happens. It's fine. But you've got like this little kid's like, hello mother. With like the knife, like mm. ee, 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 ee. You're like, that's just not supposed to happen. Yeah. You're corrupting something beautiful, and that's what clowns are. Like, you're taking something fun, and you're making it scary. And all that to say that, yeah, I I think the clowns are, I don't know. It started with um, It. Yes, the original. Yeah, the Pennywise. Because mm-hmm. he's horrifying. And I thought, well... And then the new It came out a few years ago, and I actually really liked it because... I like the actor who plays Pennywise. I actually think he's a very attractive person. So that was enough for me to be able to go see the movie and not be scared by the clown because I knew the actor underneath it. And, and you're just picturing like, mm, yes, <laughs> yes. So I had this sort of quasi crush on Pennywise. I'm just like, I'm like, if that clown came into my bedroom, no problem. <laughs> I would be fine with this. But so, so it's kind of like. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's the same way that in therapy, a lot of times therapists will, will force you to face your fear. Mm-hmm. Like if you're afraid of heights, they'll, you know, take you up on a high mountain and say like, okay, take 10 steps to the edge. Now take 11, now take 12, now take 13. And now, and then by the end of it, hopefully you'll be, you're able to stand pretty close to the precipice and be like, this is okay, you know? And I, so I think it's, I forget what it's called. It, it has a specific name. Like conditioning? It might be like desensitizing, desensitize, oh my goodness, I can't say it. (laughs) But you desensitize yourself towards something over time. Yeah. Am I saying that word right? Desensitize? Yes, I'm positive you're saying it right. It just 
sounds wrong in yeah. my head. No, but and it's right. the words I speak. So I think that's part of it is take something that you're afraid of, do it. And I don't know. There's also something about becoming the thing that you're afraid of that is empowering. So like when you actually have the clown makeup on, you feel mm-hmm. what? I feel... You, you feel like now you almost are like embodying the thing. It's not even a thing. It's, it's that feeling, that essence of fear. And then you become the fear, which again, I, I know I said at the beginning of this, like I really dislike some artists because of their pretentiousness. And I feel like everything I'm saying right now is <laughs> super pretentious. But you just, it's hard to articulate this. It stuff. is. It is really hard to articulate this. I mean, it may help maybe if it's okay to give a little context. Yeah. And then, and then, okay. So growing up, and I've been honest, I've been pretty open about this. I don't know that I've ever spoken really openly about this. So kudos to you, (laughs) world exclusive. But growing up, I was, I was terrified of my dad, like terrified. And I'm only saying this because I'm pretty sure he'll never listen to this. And also, even if he does, oh, well, uh, (laughs) So I don't, I don't have a relationship with my father anymore. Growing up, I was terrified of my dad. I won't get into the specifics about why I was terrified of my dad, but like, um, there were times where I would like sleep under my bed because I was just scared. And because of that, uh, cause I know you and I have talked about like my anxiety and it's kind of like, well, where does that come from? And I haven't, I've, I've shared a little bit on other platforms about the experience I had with a stalker when I was in my 20s yeah and that was pretty critical and pivotal for me but I think the bulk of my anxiety and when I talk about having like PTSD actually it's complex PTSD not PTSD there is a difference don't ask me to explain it right now but um the bulk of my trauma comes from my childhood So I think that I've been hiding, quote unquote, from that fear, from that boogeyman since I was little. And the thing is, I do believe that if not addressed, we do carry those wounds with us into our adulthood. And so I think I just carried that fear with me to to the point now where as an adult, you don't even really know why you're scared anymore. It's just such a constant companion for you and has been such a constant companion for you for most of your life that you just, it, it's the best way I put it, it's like a shadow. It just follows you and you you sort of stop questioning it unless you end up going into therapy, which a lot of people do and some people find it helpful and some people find it, it actually exacerbates the situation. So, and I've done both, I've done therapy and not, but anyways, my point is that, so the clowns, are almost like there's that tangible feeling of anxiety that sometimes you can you feel it like I said it's it's tangible and sometimes you can put on like a face of makeup or play a character on stage and it's like exercising that demon just a little bit like you're like you're off gassing yeah <laughs> just yeah. like you know <laughs> to to put it politely off gassing <laughs> Desiree again, reading from beginning pen and ink, but this time from the very last page, about the artist. Desiree creates work that revolves around themes of finding humor in pain, beauty in the grotesque, and light in the darkness. So I was like, dichotomies and opposites. Why? Why why that? 
I think part of it is I like the tension. Um, I like the tension of two things that you don't expect going together. I also just feel like that's how I was living my life for a really long time. Um, within that tension? Within that tension of trying to survive in a place that was really unhealthy for me. Um, so it's just somewhere that I'm very familiar with and maybe comfortable with, honestly. Um, I'm very comfortable being in that place that most people are very uncomfortable with. Um, does Does it start for you in one of those camps and then you look for the other? Like, are you like, I have this grotesque idea, how do I make it beautiful? Or do you like, I have this beautiful idea and what can I find in it that's... Not, not usually. For they, me, it just happens naturally. It's just kind of where I live artistically. They just simultaneously coexist? Yeah. Or maybe there's that moment in my head, you know, we were talking about that moment where it switches, where I'll be working on something in my head and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's what needs to go there. I think oftentimes that's the balance of whatever. So maybe I'm making something really pretty in my head and I'm like, that's going to be beautiful. But like, it doesn't really mean anything to me. And then something will happen where I'm like, oh, that's, that's it. Oh, example. I was just working on a piece um, that was representative of my siblings for no reason whatsoever. And (laughs) it was like this really pretty piece. And I was like, okay, they're going to be birds and roses and it's going to be really pretty. And I was like, um, oh, and a tarantula. There needs to be a tarantula. Like, (laughs) oh, that's right. Okay. And then I could draw the piece. Like (laughs) siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Deadly spiders. My brother was the tarantula, by the way. And this is (laughs) continuing my, my, I always mention him anytime I'm in a podcast. It's really weird. (laughs) This is like the special Easter egg for people who follow you. (laughs) It's really weird. It's just like, it's just the space that I'm in. It's just where I'm comfortable. And sometimes it's a humor thing. Like sometimes I'll be like, okay, what'll be funny? But often it's just what makes it feel right to me. You just have this, like, gut reaction to it, whether it's right or wrong when you've got it. Yeah, it just doesn't feel right until that that tension is there. I just don't know. I don't know that I know how to do or be different. And and maybe maybe that's why we all do the things that we do, because we don't know how to do something different. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you you carry on day to day with a love-hate relationship with the things that you're doing. I'm constantly constantly in this internal battle with myself. Constantly where it's like I want to stop doing this and I want the white picket fence and I want you know to be married and I just want to have zero presence on the internet. I don't want anyone to know who I am. Other than the people that you face-to-face see in your day life. Absolutely. I do not want the world to know my name. Is that weird? Given, Given what choices, I do. Yes. <laughs> completely contradictory. I don't want anyone to know who I am. I want to be a disembodied entity that exists in the, in the genres that I exist in. But then as soon as it's over, I want to disappear into the ether. I know. Like, <laughs> and so I will paint myself like a bird. Yes. <laughs> and so I will camouflage as a bird or whatever it is. And I'll wear, I'll wear so many hats that people can't pin me down, I guess. Going for art for me was never... Like, it's always been pursuing it with everything I have. 
this was never going to be Which, a side thing for you. Not, not really, no. And I think that's just how I work. Because I know plenty of artists that are amazing, successful, good artists that also have another job. Um, but for me, there's something about, I think I have a very limited amount of energy. And so I have to put it all into one thing. <laughs> I mean, and not that I put it all into one thing, but like professional energy, like it's very limited. For, not very limited, but I have a limited amount. Yeah. Um, you, that you like the focus, like the single objective? I think so. Yeah, the single objective and just, I, I mean, this is going to flow naturally into our talking about my depression and anxiety, but it's the times that I feel well enough to be really working hard, like at my full capacity, are not all the time. So if I ha- was trying to focus on one job and then do art on the side, like I just don't think I would have the energy to try to focus fully on two things. Um, as opposed to just focusing on one thing for better or for worse. Like it's probably to my detriment, but, <laughs> but also probably not. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, there is something to be said for like, I have to make the rent. How am I going to make this work with my career choice? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever like sat down and been like, okay, paper and ink, we got bills. Oh, totally. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's a lot of my summer. Not that my art isn't still really personal, but like in the summer, it's like I just have to draw things. I just have to because I'm doing all these shows and selling all these things. And so it's just, I just have to draw. Like I just have to keep drawing. To the extent that the quirkiness, this sort of like self, this this no filter of like self-expression or whatever, it's like, no. In fact, I wish I could be different. I wish I wasn't like that, but over time I've just had to accept it's just who I am. And so it's, I mean, like not to get too like wah wah about it, but like I've just had to accept over time that um, you can only commit social suicide so many times before you just kind of go, no, this is just how people are going to know me. Like, so (laughs) (laughs) it's fine. Um, that's something I've just been learning the last few years is really honestly being aware of how what I'm doing affects me and taking things at the appropriate pace. We were talking in what mic check, I guess, about what you ate for breakfast and yes. the gym. Is that is that kind of part of that? <laughs> Definitely part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is I had kind of a breakdown how long ago now, like a year and a half ago, where I was just doing way too much. Like I was literally working as the hardest I've ever worked in my life. And I just broke, like I just, my brain kind of broke for a while. Um, And so I am now very conscious, well, trying to be, I'm not always, but I'm trying to be very conscious of my body, what I put into it, giving it what it needs, but also really conscious of my mental state, taking time to rest, taking time to walk the dog. Um, And so far it's kind of make, I mean, I've had to slow, I've had to slow way down. Um, and I think it's making a difference. This year seems to be better than the last couple, so we'll see how it goes. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I see this happening in in the world. There are certain individuals, and I don't I don't tout myself as any public figure at all. Like I'm known by a, a handful of people in the community, and maybe a handful of people outside the community because of the work that I've done. But there are people out there much more much more in the public eye than I am and much more famous and much more important that for whatever reason seem to have that, that same attitude of like, I have no problem just laying my, my life, my thoughts, my garbage out there. And then, you know, 
it, the reaction seems to be you'll get a certain handful of people that are just like, thank you so much for telling your story. Um, it means the world to me. I thought I was the only one. I'm afraid to talk about this in public. I haven't even told my family about this. And so I appreciate the fact that you are brave enough or willing enough to put yourself out there in a way that I, I almost guarantee I never will kind of thing. But just so you know, you're not alone kind of thing. And then, and then you'll get the, the reaction of people on the other side to where, look, like if I, if I come out and talk about autism and I talk about my autism or I come out and I talk about like complex PTSD, again, to go along with people like to put people in boxes not in a malicious way and not because people want to or they not because they're purposefully doing it. They will put you, to some extent, into a box. They'll put you into an autistic box or they'll put you into a, like if, if I'm talking about my trauma, they'll put me into a broken box. Because they're getting this tiny snapshot, this one facet of my life, and they are making that the whole thing. A broken box. I don't want to put Britty or Desiree into any box, let alone one like broken. Yes, I know. I just put together an entire episode linking these two together through their art and trauma, anxiety, depression, and autism. But my experience of these interviews, live and in editing them, was one of so much nuance and insight and complexity and laughter. There is tension and dichotomy and contrast, Beauty in the darkness, laughter in the pain, and vulnerability in the expression of Britty's engagement with words and makeup, and Desiree's meticulous pen strokes and rolling with mistakes. I had so much more content for this episode than I could possibly fit, and so I highly encourage you to listen to next week's scrap episodes, segments that are too good for the cutting room floor, to hear Britty and Desiree talk more, laugh more, and give me more to think about. The part of me that I'm going to be thinking about in the drive home after this interview, <laughs> after this word vomit. Yes, go on. Yeah, it's just that is, is we got to have a word for a storyteller who is producing content that is somewhat autobiographical, but isn't limited yeah. by autobiography. Yeah. Um, and through mediums and modalities where it isn't always clear if the moment is creative nonfiction or creative fiction or, or uh, just for kicks and giggles because that had a lot of colors and I liked it. <laughs> it doesn't always have to mean anything profound. Yeah, and I don't think we have, I don't think we have a label for that. I don't think that's a box yet. And I think that that's part of why I wanted to interview you is because ah, I'm, I'm making my own box, baby. <laughs> We said hands and mini pies, but you yeah. you participate in the creation of content in a lot of cross genre or genre defying ways. I think that's interesting, and you wouldn't be doing that if you took all this down and PR'd the heck out of your life. It it's a it was a choice that I had to make, and it's a choice that I make daily, and the choice. On any given day, there there are days where I wake up. Even right now, I have got some episodes of the podcast that I'm thinking to myself. I'm like, I don't know if I'll publish these. I don't know if I'm ever going to do another podcast again. <sighs> and that might be the flair of the dramatic in me, but also, but for real, every every day I wake up and I I think to myself, 
Is this the path that I want to continue to walk down? Is this what I want to continue to do? Or am I done? Am I done doing this? Can I just sort of put all this away and have a quote unquote normal life? You know, but the answer so far apparently has been no. Do you know why it's been no? Other than I don't, I don't know that I know how to be any other way than what I am. Picasso said, unless your painting goes wrong, it will be no good. Now, I don't want to say the same is true of life, but I really like Desiree's approach to rolling with mistakes, and I admire her comfort with tension. Nietzsche said, we have art in order not to die from the truth. Like Britty, I off-gas or purge things through the work that I do, especially when I dance or write. It's a healthy, creative form of emotional ventilation, and it releases some pressure. That doesn't put me in the same box as Britty or Desiree because I'm not putting any of us in boxes. I just find their art and their thoughts captivating, riveting. It's personal, and it's expressive, and there's technique behind it. And it's complicated. And that keeps me listening and looking and thinking. Well, if after all of that, people are still interested in things I have to say or birds I have to paint, uh, you can you can look up the Bemuse podcast. Uh, I am on Facebook or I'm on Apple and Google and all those things. And if you want to see my Instagram stuff, you can go to Brittany Marie and you can look at all my birds. My profile is now open, which is horrifying. So... You can follow me without my approval, which I hate. Go on. <laughs> so. Yep. And here are all my social media plugs. Oh, gosh. Nope, that's me. Every single time, I'm like, I guess if you want to, you can. <laughs> Please just leave me alone, though. <laughs> just look at the stuff and then don't say anything about it. You don't even have to like it. Just just look at it. For the love, please don't leave a rating. Please don't. <laughs> Someone asked me the other day, like, how many people are following your podcast? I'm like, I have no idea. I can't look at that number. No. Why would I want to know that? <laughs> because if it's small, I'm going to feel bad. And if it's big, I'm going to feel terrified. So I prefer just the ignorance of bliss. The bliss of ignorance. If you like my stuff, don't tell me. Enjoy, <laughs> Enjoy it privately. <laughs> That's all. That's the end. Thank you, <laughs> Oh, yes. Thank you, Brady Marie and Desiree Lee. Desiree, thank you so much for letting me come down to your studio yeah, and interview you. you today. Thank you for coming. You were both refreshing, delightful, and insightful in talking about your art and your vulnerabilities. Theme music by Gordon Vitas. In the Telling is hosted and produced by me, Liz Christensen. Thank you for listening.